Well, good morning, church. I don't typically like to draw attention to these kind of things, but I'm struggling with a little laryngitis this morning, so if it cracks at different points, I'm okay. I'm all right. You just might have to listen a little closer. You might wish by the end you came to first service, that's all. I had a stronger voice then. It's getting weaker by the minute, but we will make it together as we look at this passage here and 1 Thessalonians. I'm excited about it. I tried to pace myself last service in the sermon and not get too excited. Well, that didn't work. So it probably won't work this time either. The intensity will probably still be there. You know, a professor of science was making his rounds of speaking engagements. After a dozen or so lectures, the professor expressed to his chauffeur that he was kind of tired of going from place to place giving the same lecture. Well, I have an idea, the chauffeur said. I've heard you give that speech so many times. I bet I could give it for you. We could exchange clothes, and at the next speaking engagement where they have never met you before, I pretend I'm you, and I'll give your canned speech. Preston thought that was a great idea. He said, you're on. So the chauffeur stopped the car. The two exchanged clothes, and they showed up at the banquet. The chauffeur, now dressed in a tuxedo, pretending to be the professor, waited to be introduced. The professor stood in the back of the room, pretending to be the chauffeur. Chauffeur stood up front of the audience, and he gave the speech, I mean verbatim. It was perfect. There was even a standing ovation when he was finished. However, this time, like no other time before, the MC opened it up for questions. The MC asked, is there anyone here who has a question to ask the professor? I mean, we have a great resource here. Any questions? Well, this pompous man stood up and asked an incredibly difficult question about antimatter formation. The chauffeur stood there dumbfounded, clearing his throat in nervousness, and finally said, you know, that is such a simple question. I mean, that question is so simple, I'm going to let my chauffeur answer that for me. Uh, Now, pretending to be someone is pretty messed up. But do we really know what a person is like from what we can see on the outside for just a short period of time? As I visited a church in Virginia last Sunday, and I sat in a, and it was a mega church. Uh, I was being led by the worship team and fed by one of their pastors. Several times I thought to myself, I wonder what that pastor is really like. I wonder what that worship leader is really like. I wonder what the others on the stage with him are really like. Now, I wasn't wondering that in some cynical way, though, that honestly, that did kind of sneak in. I mean, they seemed genuine, and all I really knew of them was their persona on the public stage. But I didn't know, I don't know what they were really like. Well, in the passage we're looking at today, we're invited in to see what Paul and his companions are really like. And what we see this morning is perhaps one of the most telling pictures of Paul's heart that we don't see anywhere else in Scripture. The curtain is pulled back for us a little bit to see of what's going on behind the scenes. What motivates him to serve? What stirs his soul? What makes him tick? We look behind to see the man behind the message. 
I'm really thankful for this section of scripture we're looking at today. It gets below the surface of a minister of God to see his heart. What is he and his team really like? If you're not there, turn your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. So go way back to the back of your Bibles. Get the Hebrews, kind of come back a little bit, and you'll get right where you need to be. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to pick it up where Pastor Dan left off um, last week in verse 7. And as we have noted along the way, is that Paul and his team established this church in Thessalonica in the midst of major opposition. And the question uh, Pastor Dan put on the table last week was how were they able to successfully reach that culture amidst such adversity? It's a good question. And by extension and application, how can we successfully engage a hostile culture with the gospel? Well, this message today is kind of in one sense a continuation of that question, of that thought For the section we're looking at this morning, we see a leadership style that's effective, that's successful, that works. We see a church, Thessalonica is beaten up by the, beaten down by the culture, yet thrived in the midst of it because a team of leaders knew what they needed. The church's vital signs were good because Paul and his team were not only shared the gospel with them, but their very lives as well. And that Verses captures that direction of the message this morning is the end of verse 8. So look at it in your Bibles. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the end of verse 8 that kind of captures all that I want to talk about this morning. And we'll flesh this verse out a little bit later. We were delighted, we were delighted to share with you, he says, not only the gospel of God, now catch this, but our lives as well. Now the word souls Uh, rather than lives, is really a better translation there. But Paul is saying that as essential as it is to share the gospel, and it is, it's not enough. The section of Scripture speaks to a side of us that's often tucked away. Sharing of our lives, sharing of our souls, letting others in to see who we're really like. Something here for those called to lead, whether that's in the church or the home or some other realm of responsibility. But there's something here for every one of us in the room. For every person in the room, there's something here for anyone who wishes to leave a positive mark on those you influence, on those who pass by you, on, the, on those in your web of relationships. Because if we have to successfully share the gospel, effectively speak into others' lives, we can learn from Paul's example here. And I really boiled it down to, to three words Care, conduct, and concern. Care, conduct, and concern. First of all, we see the care of a mother. A picture of the care of a mother. In the section that we looked at last week, we saw Paul's boldness. And as Pastor Dan pointed out, it was a boldness that was counterintuitive. The bolder he was, the more opposition he faced which made him even more bold for the Lord. I won't back down, would have been his song of choice. 
Paul was a never say die kind of guy. I mean, you track his life with the book of Acts and other places, you see missiles of accusation against him constantly. The battles that he had to endure were many. He was a fighter. He was a soldier. He was a warrior for Christ. I mean, he was tough. John Wayne, Sylvester Stallone's Rambo, whoever else comes into your mind when you think of a man's man, they have nothing on Paul when it comes to standing up to a challenge. Now imagine, imagine knowing that the Apostle Paul was coming to your house for dinner. Would you be intimidated? I mean, would you, uh uh-oh, I better review my memory verses. I better touch up on my theology a little bit. I might want to invite a pastor to come over and join me in this. Oh, I better have my dinner prayer all uh, written out, maybe memorized. How would you feel about the master of theology visiting your home? How might you feel about this incredibly imposing figure sitting across from you at the dinner table? Well, we looked this morning at the often unnoticed side of Paul, as one commentator put it. Listen to a man who's tough. Listen to Paul's words. Paul says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'm going to pick up verse 7 now and and, and include verse 8 as well. Verse 7, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Gentle. Mother caring for her children. We loved you so much. So dear to us. Is that what you would expect to hear from a man's man? Does it sound like a warrior to you? I mean, underneath the warrior's breastplate beats a tender center. Underneath the warrior's breastplate beats a tender center. General Norman Schwarzkopf in an interview on national television years ago now is with Barbara Walters. And uh, at one point in the interview, his eyes filled up with tears. And the interviewer, Barbara Walters, uh, asked him, well, General, aren't you afraid to cry? And this career soldier with four stars on his shoulder, a man's man by anyone's definition, replied, no, I'm afraid of a man who won't cry. I'm afraid of a man who won't cry. You see, the real muscle of a man is not in his biceps, it's in his heart. The real strength of a man is not in what he knows, but what comes out from within. The real measure of a man is not only found in his toughness, but in his tenderness. And for three to six weeks, perhaps even up to two months, Paul and his team poured themselves into this handful of believers at Thessalonica. He dared to get close to them. He shared his life with them. They saw what he was really like, for he deeply cared for them. He says, for you know that I do. He dared to share his very own soul with them. And I think it's safe to say that those who leave a deep mark for Christ are those who share their souls with others. Now notice something here with me. Paul here says that not only did he share his soul with them, 
But he was what? Do you see it? There's a word there. Delighted. He was delighted to do it. Now I want to linger here just for a moment. Because why were Paul and his companions delighted to share their own lives? Well, the end of verse 8 gives us the answer. Because you had become so dear to us. Are others dear to you? Are others dear to me? Now, we hear a lot about love being a decision, that love is a choice, love is an act, and that is all true. But don't take it further than it should go. Is it possible, I ask, is it possible that we have conveniently hidden behind the idea that love is a decision, that we have done so mechanically, dutifully, yet left our hearts behind? Is that possible? And yet a heartless love really is an oxymoron. I mean, if the gospel is really touching our lives, if it is transforming us, then shouldn't it lead to deep affection for one another? Shouldn't we have a heart for people? 1 Peter 1.22 says, love one another how? Deeply, deeply from the heart. doesn't say mechanically, dutifully, deeply from the heart. And we have that kind of love for one another. Listen, it's a kind of love that's attractive to those watching on the outside. To know your disciples if we love one another. Stories told by D.L. Moody, the great American evangelist, when he opened the YMCA, he went downtown Chicago to reach the rough street boys, and they came by the hundreds to hear him speak. Well, as one boy was making his way to go listen to D.L. Moody speak, someone inquired of the young boy, why would you go listen to this man uh, preach to you at the YMCA? And he answered, because they really love you over there. Because they really love you over there. As the saying goes, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. The sharing of our souls Church is more than just sharing of information. Chuck Swindoll put it this way. He said, when people are hurting, they need more than an accurate analysis and diagnosis, more than professional advice, more, much more than a stern, firm turn of a verbal wrench that cinches everything down tight. And if we're honest, that's often how, what we offer the hurting, advice, a solution, some way to fix it. We give them our heads, not our hearts. And so then, rather than ease their burden, we become more of a burden to them. They go, thanks a lot. Now I really feel heavy because you gave me nothing. Paul cared for them, it says, like a mother caring for her children. And the picture is of a mother nursing her baby. Okay, admittedly, that's a little awkward for me. I'm slightly uncomfortable talking about a nursing mother. I know nothing of that experience. It'd be better to bring someone else up here. But Paul didn't know either. But he spoke of it, and I think we get his point. As a mother nurses her child, and it's up close, it's personal, it's tender. There's a gentleness aspect to a mother caring for her little one. And don't you think we all could all, we, we all 
could use a little more dose of gentleness with others? Why are we so harsh with others sometimes? Gentleness will go a long way in other people's lives. Matter of fact, Proverbs 15.1 says the gentle answer can do what? Turn away wrath. It's that powerful. Gentleness is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. So we have to stop and ask, what are we really like? Gentle or harsh? Tender or insensitive? Caring or hardened? You know, unfortunately, you can test this yourself, but unfortunately, what seems to happen is the more conservative we become, the less compassionate and caring we are. As we share our lives with others, let gentleness spill out. Let's be more caring. Secondly, let's look at the conduct of a leader. Conduct of a leader here in um, verse 9. First of all, we see his conduct uh, in his sacrifice or in their sacrifice. Verse 9 says, Surely you remember, brothers, our toil, which speaks of fatigue, our hardship, which points to the external difficulties they encountered in the process. So you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship that we worked night and day, round-the-clock diligence of these men, figure of speech of that, of course. But why did they work so hard to earn a living? Verse 9 continues, in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. And really, he speaks here in contrast to the charlatans and peddlers that, we looked at, that Dan looked at last week in the previous verses, who these guys, they, they blew into town, they gave some eloquent speech, collected some money, and then left the town. No sharing of lives. Just give me your money, off we go. And Paul's saying here, we, he conducted themselves in a way that proved to them they were not in it for the money. They earn their living another way, through tent making, which my understanding of that is very hard work. Why do they do that? Because in this way, they would not be a burden to them financially. Now, just kind of as an aside, but an important aside, Paul and his co-workers certainly had a right to financial support. Paul speaks of that other places in Scripture. They had a right to that, but they sacrificed that right in this context, in this setting, for the sake of others. And you know, the key word there is sacrifice. What are we really like is seen, and what are we willing to sacrifice for the sake of someone else? I have a right. Maybe you do. Do you sacrifice it? You sacrifice for the sake of your spouse or your children, others in the Christian community, the people God has placed in your path. Paul and his team went out of their way to be, not be a burden to these believers. His conduct is seen in his sacrifice. His conduct is also seen when given a power and authority. His conduct is also seen when given power and authority. There's another sense in which they were not a burden to these new believers. And that's expressed back in verse 6 now. You got to go back to the end of verse 6. When it says, as apostles of Christ. Note that. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you. Now here I don't think he's speaking of an economic burden. 
He's saying, as apostles of Christ, we are not a burden to you. We do not throw our weight of authority around. We could have played the apostle card, but we did not. They could have made the weight of their authority felt. They did not. And you know, in some Christian circles, among leaders of an organization or parachurch ministry or pastors and leaders of a local church, this kind of authority has been misused and abused. I could give you example upon example upon example. I'm actually sick of reading them about them, to be honest with you. It has led to sexual encounters being dismissed mistreatment of other staff members, cruelty to members within the church because no one dared to speak against the one in authority. That is not a leadership style that honors God. That is not a leadership style that works in God's world. It doesn't. You might get results, but it's not the way God wants them to do it. Power, hungry pastors and leaders, not God's way at all. And I have known even members of churches who must run by the pastor every big purchase and major decision before they make a move. Now, I'll be honest, I don't want that burden. <laughs> it's a burden on me. I have a hard enough time making decisions for myself. I don't want your stuff. But this happens. Why? You want to see what a person's really like? Give them authority and power. Back 10 years ago, there was a study that was done in which subjects played a two-person game of Monopoly. Power was intentionally skewed as one player was given a wad of cash and the use of both dice, while the other player received only half the cash and one die. And within minutes, the, the ones with more cash and two dice, the high-status players, they began acting noticeably different. They hogged the space of the table. They made less eye contact. They took more liberties, such as moving the low-status players' game pieces for them. They also made more noise when they moved their own pieces. I do this sometimes. Okay, another subject. But everyone, the funny thing is, everyone knew the game was rigged. And yet within a few minutes, the roles crystallized, and the high-status players started pushing people around and acting like they had real power and status. A little bit of power, a little bit of power does really corrupt ordinary people, even when it's just a game. As Pope Francis put it, he said, there's a saying in Argentina, power is like drinking gin on an empty stomach. Can't believe the Pope's saying that, but there you go. He makes the point though, says you feel dizzy, you get drunk, you lose your balance, and you'll end up hurting yourself and those around you if you don't connect your power with humility and tenderness. Folks, some are drunk on power. Not the way of Paul. Not the way of God. And so I take a step back. And we ask these questions. Have you hurt someone because your power has gone to your head? 
Have you hurt someone because your power has gone to your head? Are you burdening others by your demands placed on them? Do you think you're better than them? In what way might you be placing an unnecessary burden on someone else? Or how about this? How is it your way or the highway showing up right now? What is the burden of expectation you play on others? You say, I am the one in charge. Remember, you've heard me say it before, right? If you have to tell others you're the leader around here, you're probably not. But you know what you, when, when you act that way, you are no fun to be around. You're not. And it's not God's way. So as you share your life with others, do others see humility? Do others see sacrifice? I got to talk one other thing. He speaks of his conduct here that's observable. His life, is, his life backed up his words. And we'll come back to that at the end. But I want us to see this right now in verse 10. This is a very bold statement. You are witnesses, and so is God. Two witnesses here. God and you. You're witnesses of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed observable conduct. They can't fake him out and say, well, we're this way, but now we're going to just say that we're holy. No, they'd go, no, you're not. Holy in terms of our relationship with God. Righteous in terms of our dealings with other people. Blameless in terms of a watching world. Listen, whether you like it or not, whether it's always fair or not, we are being watched. Our actions matter. Two gas company employees, two gas company employees stopped their truck in suburban neighborhood to check the meters on a row of houses. They parked at one end of the street and they worked their way from house to house checking these meters. Or at the last house where they're checking the meter, a woman inside watched them. Well, when they finished checking the last meter, the older supervisor challenged the young colleague to a, a foot race back to the truck, declaring, I'm more physically fit than you. Well, the young guy said, you're on. And off they ran down the street as fast as they could. And as they approached the truck, <laughs> the woman from the last house was huffing and puffing right behind them. They both looked at her, and before they could even say a word, she said, well... You know, when I saw you check my gas meter and you started running, I decided I better run also. <laughs> right? See, if you're leading, others will be following. What are they following? If you call yourself a Christian, people are watching. What are others observing in us? Now listen, you don't have to be perfect, but be real. We don't have to pretend we have it all together. Let's be honest about our struggles. Be genuine. And as we continue throughout this book, we'll see what, what Paul's really like as he openly shares his love for them. Because you see, it's impossible. It's impossible to be meaningfully, meaningfully involved in impacting others from a distance. As Howard Hendricks put it, we can impress from a distance but we can only impact others up close. Church, this means we need to let other people in. Husbands, this means you need to let your wife in to the back room of your soul. 
Why does this mean you share openly with your husbands about the cares of your hearts without demanding that he come through for you? Whatever it is, let him in. Care of a mother, conduct of a leader. I need to get to this last one here. What is Paul really like? What are we really like? Concern of a father. Concern of a father. What is the end game in sharing our lives with others? Right here, verse 11. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Now, I don't want us to miss the goal in all of this. We share our lives with others for not merely what we can get out of it, but what we can give. And what ought to be our greatest concern of our hearts and sharing the gospel and giving of ourselves to other people and imparting truth to others is that they might live lives worthy of God's. That's the goal. That ought to be our highest concern. Is it? Is that our highest concern? Is that what you want for others? Is others' well-being on your mind? The emphasis is on others. Stories told of General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, who was invited to speak at an international convention. The day of the conference, Booth became quite ill. I related to him a little bit this morning. He was so sick, he was unable to even speak at the conference. Everyone scrambled to find someone to speak in his, in his place, but finding no one to take his place, they contacted Booth and asked him if his speech was written out, maybe it was printed out, and that they might wire, he might wire that message to them, and they can then read it in his place. Booth agreed. He wired the message to the delegates, and one of the delegates stood up front with Booth's message in hand, First time he looked at it, he opened up the message, and he read the message. It contained one word, others. That's it, others, this old speech, one word, others. And they folded it out, and he left. That's it. That is why we do what we do for others. And as pointed out last week, the characters mentioned back in verse 3. They did what they did to build their own kingdoms. They did what they did to feed their own self-worth. They did what they did, you know, we might say build bigger buildings. They did what they did for what they would get out of it. It benefited them. And Paul here, he wants to distance himself from these charlatans, from these peddlers who are on the scene in his day. Because his greatest concern was they might live lives worthy of God. It wasn't for his benefit. It was so that they might live lives worthy of God. That my greatest concern. And we'll know that it's our greatest concern. Well, that it isn't our greatest concern. Let me say it that way. We'll know that it isn't our greatest concern when we're jealous over someone else's success in ministry. Or when we take matters too personal. Or when we find it hard to rejoice in someone else's growth or some breakthrough in their life because we had very little or nothing to do with it. 
kind of says, hey, it's about me. Because whenever we see someone take a step, or close to, a step closer to Christ, that ought to cause great excitement, even if we get no credit for it. Because our greatest concern is that they walk worthy of the calling of God. The ultimate concern was the well-being of others. And that concern is displayed, a second metaphor Paul uses, and their fathering of them. Not only mother, now it's father. We dealt with you, each of you as a father deals with his own children. And I, don't want, I can't get into it, but the ancients in that day had an understanding of the way a father deals with his children. And Paul, in, his, in writing this, picks up on that. And what was their understanding of how the father deals with his children? By encouraging, comforting, urging. This is how we influence others toward living lives worthy of God. Encouraging, comforting, urging. And in my prep time, I started spending all kinds of time on the meaning of each of those words and the original and yada, yada, yada. And you know what? I'm not bringing it here because I think we understand what it means on its own. Encouraging, comforting, urging. It's not making it more complicated than it ought to be. Encouraging, comforting, urging. What What a challenging trilogy. Do you see yourself in the antithesis of these qualities, whether it's in your parenting or other relationships? Are you rather annoying rather than encouraging? Are you frustrated and exasperating others rather than comforting? Are you reprimanding and condescending rather than urging? Listen, at Living Hope, a sign of life is that we help each other live lives worthy of God through encouraging, comforting, and urging. And living hope, a sign of life, is that we help each other live lives worthy of God through encouraging, comforting, and urging. We need to check our vital signs. How are we doing here? This ought to be our greatest concern, helping each other live lives worthy of God. Someone said it this way. I want you to be what I'm, I want to be what I'm supposed to be, and I want you to be what you're supposed to be, so help me be, help me to be what I'm supposed to be, and I need to help you to be what you're supposed to be. That, that means we're going to share our lives with each other. Or as another one put it, we, we can't simply cheer people on and give them our best wishes. We have to make room for them in our lives. I think that might be the rub. Can we make room for other people in our lives? Do we let others in? And if we're going to let others in, this is the hard stuff. It means we drop some pretenses. Christian author and popular public speaker, Brennan Manning, shares about one time when a spiritual mentor confronted him with these words. And he said to him, Brennan, give up trying to look good and sound like a saint. It would be a lot easier on everybody. What do you really like? Because to encourage and comfort and urge others to live lives worthy of God, to share our lives with other people and let them in. You know what that means? Our lives must back up our words. The words integrity, avoided it on purpose because we kind of go, yeah, integrity, I know what it means. No, do we? We've heard it so much. Our lives back up our words. Ruben Pavone 
was driving down the road in Derry, New Hampshire, when a store caught his eye. There's a large building with lots of stuff out front just sitting on the sidewalk. But as the name on the building, they got, Ru- got Reuben into some trouble. The name of the store was Finders Keepers. Yeah. Well, Reuben was caught on surveillance, carrying off a grill from out in front of the store. And it wasn't the first time he had taken items from the store, apparently. He later confessed, taking a DVD player and other items. Even in one surveillance video, he's seen with his son taking items from the front porch of the store. That's great. But can taking things really be wrong if the store is named Finders Keepers? Well, the store's owner, Laura Barker, said, I don't know of any stores where there's free stuff. It'd be nice if there were. I'd be there on a regular basis myself. But in his defense, Reuben claimed the store's sign, Finders Keepers, created specific expectations in his mind. And that's why later on he said, I thought it was there for the taking. The sign said, finders keepers. A couple of weeks later, stuff still there on the porch. I'm thinking to myself, finders keepers. They probably just put out stuff, the stuff out there for people to take. Huh. No. Well, Reuben eventually returned all the merchandise that he found in front of the store. But you know, maybe Laura Barker should consider a new name for her store. Christian. Follower of Jesus, believer, those names create certain expectations. You may not like that, but they do. We cannot overstate the importance of walking the talk. What do you really like? Let's pray. God, help us, really help us to live out who we say we are. It's not going to be done perfectly, and the expectations sometimes are unfair. But we can't easily get off the hook there either. There are expectations that come, and we declare that we are followers of Jesus Christ, we profess his name. To God, apply that to our lives in a very personal way as only you can do and, and really make us think about this and apply it to our lives. All to your glory and praise. Amen.